Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. All right. My husband's therapist hasn't mentioned anything about abstinence. I've heard that he should abstain from any type of porn, sex, and masturbation for 90 days. How important is it that he abstain for 90 days? Is it necessary for recovery? Oh, my gosh. You have a feeling about this? I I have strong feelings about this. So, but anyway. Well, I probably should start then. Um, I don't think everyone needs to to take 90 days. I, I don't think that everyone i think that each person is different for example i was told to take six months and i was not sexual for six months i work with clients who or i used to when i did outpatient work they literally couldn't get more than than a week and a half and so we had to say you're going to not be sexual with anyone from now until i see you again and we could get through a week or we could get through four days and then they had to call me so yes it's important to take time and yes, there is a usefulness in that time, um, but it doesn't. There is no set amount of time. And I might need to take thirty days now, and two years later, I need to take some more time because I, maybe I have some abuse that came up or something to work through. So I don't think it's about the amount of time. I think what is the purpose? What can I? How can I make use of that time? And I do want to say that it's very important if we do take time that your spouses respect that. And if that means we have to sleep in another bed, then that's the way it is. But there is this idea in our community, and I know, I know where I know where it comes from, which is something about the brain resetting. Itself. Yeah. And I've heard, you know, if you just go ninety days, and to me that's like a bad sales job. The brain does not ever reset; it adapts. It grows, it integrates, it, you know, we can learn new things, but you just don't go back to this if you take this much time out. And that's not how it works. You reset your brain by experiences and knowledge that's repeated over time. And that's why we go to pro. If I could reset my brain, I wouldn't need to go to therapy that much. I'd just be able to go to a meeting a year because my brain has reset. So the 90, and I'll just say something for myself I took 90 days. And then another 90 days. And I'll tell you what I got out of it and what I didn't. What I got out of it for me was I learned who I was if I wasn't actively promoting myself sexually. What I realized during those 90 days is how I dressed, how I walked, how I talked, who I approached, what I said to them, who I invited for lunch. Everything was at least had some thread of how can I get laid? How can I have a sexual experience? How can I, even if it was, who is this person who I could spend time with and then run off, you know, but everything was centered around that. And when I couldn't or chose not to, but couldn't be sexual, all of a sudden it didn't matter what I wore as much. I, I didn't have to look at everybody walk by because I actually learned to look down. I learned that I could, I learned who I was without all that craziness. And that alone was a real gift. And then my sponsor said, take another six. However, what I did not learn from that is how to date how to build intimacy inside of sexuality. So some of the 12-step programs, SA, for example, says, you know, unless you're basically married or in a committed relationship, you can't have sex. And I think that's very difficult for the single people because you need to learn how to hold hands, how to negotiate kissing, how to move toward intimacy, because we're not very good at that already. So taking time out 
is a good part of it and especially can be reassuring to a partner or help me learn about myself. But learning how to build intimacy and sexuality and relationship, it, that's where it drops me off because that part, I have to be being connected and sexual in order to. Um, so Tammy, that's my whole spiel on that. Do you have okay. feedback? So, yeah, well, of course, my um, husband's <laughs> therapist hasn't mentioned anything about abstinence. Who says? So that was my first, like, oh my gosh, who says? You know, if your husband, who's the addict and the liar, is telling you that my therapist hasn't mentioned anything about that, don't believe me. Now, if, if you know, if you're in the sessions and that is the case, that's a whole different thing. The and this feels like super early in the in the process because you know we just mentioned the work group. So to me, sex addiction one hundred and one starts again October first. What's the three circle plan? What is the inner circle? And I have to believe that you know porn and masturbation are probably in that inner circle. Sex with you, as Dr. Rob often says, why would you have sex with anybody you don't trust? And if this is early on, you know, so so there's so much here that like answering this in a, in a quick soundbite is challenging. But my first thing is if you have not heard it from the therapist, don't believe that your husband's therapist has actually said that. And, um, uh, and healthy boundary for you. If you're doing these things, I don't feel safe. So therefore we, you know, sleeping in a separate bedroom and all of these things, I want to see action for your recovery. All, all of the things that you're mentioning are absolutely keeping, you know, not that the brain just magically resets, but it's keeping that, you know, that all that active, you know, so um, taking hey, a pause is good. But I want a reset button. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No doubt. Yes. We need one of those. Yeah. Um, I did interrupt you. Was there something else you wanted to no, say? No, no, that was it. I want to move on to the next question. So, okay. Because okay. we're, um, we have yeah, 11 minutes left. Okay. I don't understand what a love addict is and you are going to help with that. Okay. Well, I think all, all love addicts are sex addicts in graduate school. So what I mean by that is a sex addict will objectify body parts. I don't care who you are. I'm going to look at your butt. I'm going to look at your arms. I'm going to look at your breasts. I'm going to look at whatever turns me on. And I'm going to want to connect with those body parts. Um, you're, you happen to be holding those body parts. So whatever I need to do to get through you emotionally to get to those body parts, that's what I'm looking for. But Sex addicts are looking for validation and sex addicts get validated. If you desire me sexually, or if I can get you to have sex with me, then I feel good about myself. I feel powerful. I'm distracted, all that stuff. Love addiction is like a level up where I objectify the person. So my goal is not really to build intimacy with you. My goal is to have you there because I feel so empty and I feel so alone. And I want somebody to just plug all of this up and make me feel connected and make me feel whole and make me feel supported. The problem is, is for love addicts is they also don't care who that person is. I mean, they want them to be this and that and the other thing, but on some level, they just want someone to be here. And so they too quickly get involved in relationships often or get too deeply involved because it really isn't about, do I like this person? Although you may or may not, it's more about how can they make me feel better? And then what happens with the love addict is three months in or six months in, they realize this isn't even someone they like, or this is someone who abuses me or whatever it is. But they realize that they stayed not because they cared about who that person was, but because they wanted what that person had to give to them. So a love addict, sex addicts are based on objectifying body parts. Love addicts objectify the person 
to see how the person can make them feel better as opposed to the body part. But all of it is about making up things about you that will make me feel better. I'm not really that interested in you as a person. Um, and as I said, sometimes when you find out who the person is, love addicts are often so quickly wanting to connect because it's intolerable for them to be alone that they don't know anything about the person that they've opened their heart to. Um, and then they're horrified when they realize, oh, this isn't a good person. Well, as a therapist said to me once, and I'll say this Tammy, because I hated when they said this, I wanted to be a relationship so bad. I spent 20 years of recovery trying to get into a relationship. And I said to a therapist, how a good one, how long do you think it really gets to know someone to have a good intimate relationship? And then he said the horrifying thing I didn't want to hear. He said about two years and my jaw fell on the floor. It's not that we don't build relationships and love each other in a year and move in or whatever, but we addicts need more time. We need, we need to, here's the word discernment. I don't really care enough to discern who you are, where you're coming from. If I'm a love addict, I just want someone who is good enough to make me feel not, not alone and taken care of. But when you find out who they are, they may or may not be the person that you want to be with. And then, by the way, love addicts drop that person and start looking for the next person, or they stay with this person and start dating that person, too. Um, so that's my answer. Tammy, you could throw some stuff. My own, I, I, that's all great. The only thing I want to caveat with is I often hear from partners who perceive that because they love somebody so challenging as an, you know, that, that they love an addict, that they're a love addict. And mm. so I go, well, let's talk about that. And I start, you know, asking them questions. Well, no, well, no. I said, so you love someone who's broken. That does not make you a love addict. And I feel so bad that partners automatically go to, there's something wrong with me, you know, that I'm so problematic, you know, I'm a love addict because I love somebody who's, who's really challenging. Now I'm sure, you know, there may be a few of them that, you know, actually have some, you know, addictive behavior, but I, 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 I hear it misused. I, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, you know, so I appreciate you clarifying what it is and what it isn't. Well, I also think that someone who's been deeply hurt is always looking for why. Why did you do yes. this to me? I thought you loved me. And unfortunately, some of you will turn on yourselves and say, I must be the reason. And that's because I don't, I, I picked someone who was going to hurt me. And I wrote Prodependence. I'm a big fan of, of understanding that we, we maintain and live with these kind of relationships primarily because we love this person. And if it isn't going well, we still love them. And if we stop, you know, so I don't think that we stay with or love broken people because there's something wrong with us. I think that we love them and we care about them and we want them to be well and we see the good in them. But we see who they are, even if there's parts that are hidden, you know who your spouse is, even if they're high. Now, you may say, I don't know who they are because they did all this stuff. I think you kind of do. And I think you love one of the things I love, love about prodependence is that it looks at the partner as being the person who is holding the image of who I might be. One of the things I really appreciate is that you and a partner aren't staying with me because because you're hurting yourself. You're staying with me because you can still see the good in me. You can still see the part that might get better if I get better. And to me, that's not addiction. That's love. So um, unless you're being, you know, really deeply abused, in which case, you know, you need to get away from there. So Thank I'm holding you. up the book. And then there's also the clinical book. So if you're clinician if your qualified professional is not using the prodependence language you know please direct them to our website because that's on there too so okay next question my wife has asked me to give her access to 
emails between me and a woman I was in contact with through work. I didn't think it had been unprofessional until I looked at them. It made me cringe. My wife hasn't looked at them yet. She's not sure she wants to. This same woman has come back to my workplace and I feel sick when I need to interact with her. And to to the extent I have uh, to as part of my job, any advice on making healthy boundaries with women at work? Well, yes, but I don't think that's the question here. I think the question is, um, how do I respect my partner? Because they're going to find out about this. You're going to have to do disclosure or they're going to figure it out or they're going to see it. She's going to decide that she wants to see those emails. It's inevitable. And so a given, there's going to be upset. There's going to be anger. I can't believe you wrote those things. What were you thinking? How can you be so, you know, whatever it is with that person that you just work with. The question is, when you go on to say, and we still work together, and we still see each other, and we still communicate, that's when your spouse is going to be devastated. You know, I have had clients change jobs. I have clients change cities. I have had clients do all, give up their careers and change something else because they just understood how painful it would be for their partner to know that every day for however many hours I'm interacting with the very person that I had an affair with or tried to set up, how could your spouse ever so you walk out the door in the morning or, you know, they go to work and think they're talking to them, they're interacting with them. They, so what I would be thinking about other than rather than setting boundaries is how is, can I leave? Can I move on? And by the way, that woman in the workplace, if those emails, if she decides that she wants to sue you or go after you, you know, there is this me too thing going on and rightly so. And she just needs to bring that to your boss or put that in the newspaper or whatever it is. She'll go to a lawyer. And when they read those emails, it's going to be a problem. So if it were me, I would try to get out of this situation if I could, um, because when your spouse hears about it, all they're going to want to make sure is you don't spend any time with this person, period. I'll give you one little clue. Is that my dog? Shouldn't be my dog. Um, I'll give you one little clue about how to handle boundaries at work, though. I think this is very useful. Never go out alone with this person. If you're going to lunch, make sure someone else is there. If it's in your office and you're having a conversation, make sure someone else is there. Don't set yourself up in a situation where it's just you and them. Um, and I think if you just make sure there's a third party around, um, you are cutting off the possibility that you're going to end up back where you don't want to be um yeah we have time for one more i'm going to see if that's my dog but i'm listening well so hang on um so i'm here so no i want to i will respond on some of this so first of all if it's work emails um like mm-hmm. you should check with uh, like is it appropriate to show your your wife I, you know like like some things are you know like my husband's job he should never show me in the business he works in like it would be terms for firing if he if I was involved in that you know that's just the kind of business he does so um I think and I don't know if your wife needs to see it I think it would be fair to say they are cringe I looked at them they are cringeworthy you know enough said um but yeah I agree with Dr. Rob the uh, ability to look for another job like it's do you value your relationship you know their jobs are jobs you know um although mine is so fabulous thank you dr Rob. so <laughs> but i um, do yeah um, no I but it's one the of those right people i want to work with yeah but I, it's I one wanna... of those go ahead, go ahead. but mm-hmm. no but but um but I, I would be 
careful from, you know, like what is your work policy about, you know, other people seeing work emails, but also to, you know, for, for your wife's sake, she doesn't, she's not sure she wants to see them owning that they are cringeworthy, you know, and, um, and it's part of your disclosure or whatever, that would be different for me. So. Well, I want to add two little things. One is we have a notion in recovery called powerlessness. And it means that my addiction may just show up when I don't expect it. I don't know where it's going to, you know, and if this person is anyway seductive or flirtatious, or you, they think you've got something going, you don't know when you're going to run into a situation with them where you're going to be powerless. Well, all of a sudden you're going to be taken over by this desire to do something with them, whatever it is. And I would not want to be in a situation where day after day after day, I was running into an emotional affair partner. For myself, I wouldn't want that temptation and that distraction every day. The other thing I wrote about, which I think, by the way, is the, one of the most painful things for a spouse to see in emails like this, is you have talked about your marriage or your relationship there's nothing worse than your spouse seeing emails where you said well i'm not really happy and she doesn't really look good to me anymore and you know uh, that's so or i'm not sure i love her and or him anymore there couldn't be anything more painful than a spouse realizing that you talked about us with that person or you showed them pictures or whatever that is so that's beyond cringeworthy um that's uh horrifying to me if i was a spouse do you want to do one more, Tammy? Um, we, we can. Or is it dinner? Uh, oh, we can keep it, boundaries. We can keep our boundaries. Yeah, I was just saying, because the next one's long. So um, okay. it is, um, what types of emotional safety and boundary measures can I make for myself when my PASADA co-occurring addictive husband is not really participating we can't, in this recovery? No, yeah. we can't. But yeah. we can do the one below it. They said, I'm going to email you, Dr. Rob. I'd like to see no, no, no. call. Uh, yeah. So don't email I, I, me. No, I, 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 well, the, the open one. No, I, don't email me. No, I was answering and I said, I'm going to email you like that was answering something else. So, but if anyone wants to contact us, please, you know, I'm glad to talk Tammy, to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's another quick question. Oh, I'm going to uh, add this one. Does it make sense to do underlying issue work groups? If you haven't done the sex addiction one-on-one course, I'm six months in sober. I, I mean, if you are on solid recovery, you've got a great sponsor, you're doing, you're really doing the work and not struggling with slips or anything, then do the underlying issues. But, you know, those foundational components in sex addiction 101 or porn addiction 101, yeah, I highly recommend. I think, you know, you know, like I, I go to 12 step meetings still regularly. Do you know how many first step meetings I've been in? Like, it doesn't matter. I can always learn more from them. So, so those foundational components are really good. So, so even if you think you're doing good with that, it still could be beneficial. So anyway, go ahead. And I would just build on what I think Tammy's right. You know, if you're surprised, if you're working on trauma and early issues leads you back to the desire to act out and you start looking and pecking and hunting again, then as a therapist, I would say, let's pull back from that and reinforce your recovery. And then we can go back to it. There are some people who absolutely can't even live in the world because their trauma leaves them to want to act out. And when they deal with the acting out, they're suffering from trauma. When they deal with the trauma, they start acting out. And that is a residential treatment issue where someone needs to be in a contained and supportive environment to look at this stuff and work on it without acting out. Um, but it really has to do, and I don't think it's 
about our courses. I think it's about sobriety. You're welcome to come to a course, but a course is just taking a course. I think it's, a, we're talking about your emotional stability. And I think that that is something that needs a lot of discussion with the people who know you. Um, and especially with your therapist, do you think I'm stable enough to start working on these things? Um, because I don't want you spinning back into recovery, even though your goal was to try to grow and to learn more about yourself. Okay, on to the next one. I need to write a partner impact letter for my PA husband. Is there any information I should include or exclude? I'm going to say work with your qualified professional. Like when, like, so for Dr. Rob alluded to this, we have, you know, guys, when they're coming into treatment, we ask the partners for, for information and we're, we're, we give guidance, you know, this is what we're looking for, you know, so that we have that. What but you've you, been through, what you yes, experienced, yes, how your life has been, how yes. you've been lied to sexual issues, all of it, we bring in like an impact letter for us to read and treat. Sorry, Tim, yes. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, no, that's okay. But yeah, but it's not part of disclosure. So what I hear you saying is I need to do an impact letter for my formal therapeutic disclosure, which means you please, please, please be working with a qualified professional. Ask for guidance from that professional. You know what? I mean, and I will say this too, Dr. Rob um, offers a peer case consultation group for, for professionals. If your professional is not working or is not participating in that, that's another free resource. They can contact me, Tammy, T-A-M-I at seekingintegrity.com. The most talked about topic amongst the professionals is formal therapeutic disclosure. So this is not oh, well, we're going to do this ourselves. This is not something to do. This is, if you want to heal the relationship, if you want to set a foundation for moving forward, get professional help, qualified professional help to do that. But um, your professional will help you with what should be on there. Well, and if you're talking about CSETs, and that's not directly related to this question, you have to understand, because I've been part of that training, I've helped do some of that training, I've written some of that training. And what I can tell you is um, that being a CSET doesn't mean you know anything about addiction or you know how to treat addiction. And there are certain kinds of models, if you will, certain kinds of ways I need to act and needs to treat the situation that's based on treating addiction, whether I'm treating drugs, alcohol, gambling, whatever. So I can be trained to work with sex addiction, but I also need to know on a, on a bigger level, how do you treat addicts? And some CSATs are wonderful, warm, loving, compassionate people, but they don't know how to get in someone's face and say, what the F are you doing to your kids and family? They would never do that. And so I think you do need to make, just because you guys say, oh, well, they're seeing a CSAT. You know, if if they're not getting direction, if they're not being challenged, like this other story, he's been seeing a CSAT for a while, you know, still acting out. How could that ever be acceptable? You know, I would be all in his face uh, as a therapist. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? You know, how could you, you know, all that kind of stuff. So not to dismiss CSAT. In a loving like, and compassionate way. It was accountability, or, you know, like. It, right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I can be pretty challenging if I need to be, as the guys know, yeah, but that's yeah. only the ones who are just not able to hear it. And by the way, when we do impact letters or, or spousal experience letters in mm -hmm. treatment, um, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me. And of course, not so much to you guys, but spouses, but how many of the men will say, well, my wife or my spouse has said that a hundred times. I've heard all of that before, but they don't listen. I said, well, why didn't you listen? Because they're in group of seeking integrity, weeping about how their behavior has affected you and their children. And then they say, but I've heard this a hundred times. And my response is always, why didn't you listen? But when I read it to them, for some reason, in a group of men, they say, oh my God, what was I thinking? And so just to say it in treatment, they have an opportunity to hear it differently than they might hear it from you. 
Um, as far as your question, information included or not included. So here are some suggestions, but CSATs all, don't always agree with me. So that's you know where they come from. I think impact letters are best when they are short, two pages or less. If you're writing a 12-page short story about everything that's ever happened in your, in your they're going to tune out. They're not going to hear the important points you want to get across to them. And then it becomes more about you're saying what you need to say rather than being heard. So I know this is crazy for some of you spouses. And some of the CSATs have to say, well, I want you to write 14 pages and single spaced. And you know, we tell our partners when they write our letters, uh, you know, one single uh, a space in between. I don't know if that's single space or double space, double but space, a space yeah. in between. And don't write like two percent two size font. You have to write like twelve. You know, because what you need to get across, you can get across in two pages. And sometimes, what I would write is I would make a list of the most painful and difficult things I've gone through. I would also suggest that they're not all about sex. When I read letters from spouses who of men who are in treatment, I can tell you, and it's interesting to me, that 90% of what those spouses say is about you don't hear me, you don't listen to me, you don't support me, you've been away, you haven't, you know, it's it's about the relationship and the connection, and 10% is it about the sex. So I think it's really important that, that I would probably write down, you know, here are the five things related to sex I'm worried about, but here are all the other things not being listened to, not being understood, not getting help at home, you know, whatever that stuff is. Um, so keep it reasonably short. I would make sure it comes from some lists of, of concerns rather than just writing and writing and writing. Or maybe you could write and write and write and then pull out the things you want to look at and then shorten your letter. Write 14 pages, but get it down to two. Um, and I think, let me think about the most powerful things that happen with the letters I read. I think for when the men understand the basic things that they were supposed to do in their family life, really basic. Like, and I know this sounds simple, but well, actually the biggest, I'm sorry, Tammy, I'm spinning my head. The biggest issue that I think is important for you spouses to say is how disrespected you have felt. What it was like for you to think you were a part of this family. And then here's the big one, be blamed. It's awful when we say, well, if you were just more this, or if you're just more, more that, or, you know, this is not your fault. And as you hear me talk about in pro-dependence or anybody who works with me, because I don't believe in codependency, and Tammy can tell you other ways that we look at it. Um, you know, the first thing I say to a spouse is, it's, you have to completely understand that nothing that has happened here is your fault. And I say to every spouse that's here, it is not your fault. It could never be your fault. You can be fat. You can be lazy. You can hate me. You can make me miserable. You can nag all the time. You can yell. You, you know, you can do everything in the world to make me an unhappy person because of the way... Um, uh, because for whatever reason, and I can go for a walk or I can get a lawyer or I can go play golf or I can talk to a friend or I can go for, there are many, many things I can do when I am unhappy with my spouse, other than go see sex workers and have affairs or whatever that is. So I and it's the same with alcohol. You make me miserable. I say, well, I wouldn't drink if I wasn't married to her. Yeah, you would, but you would blame someone else or something else. So no matter how badly any of you spouses feel like this is my fault or I should take some responsibility or you don't have any. You may have responsibility for problems in the relationship. We all do. But you are never, ever, ever responsible for someone choosing to act out and betray you. That is their decision. So anyway, I'm not sure how I got there, but I really I'm passionate about that. Yeah, no. I, and, you know, and I agree. So I want to circle back to make sure you have 
professional help with this. I love the idea of writing it all down and then finding the themes. Uh, you know, I had one partner that had 150 questions for post-disclosure. And I said, I bet we can narrow it down. We narrowed it down to three questions because it, it, they all came back to the same three themes. You know, it was, you know, it doesn't matter what it was, but, you know, kind of safety was one of them. And, but, but like you were talking about, you know, uh, earlier, like the betrayal of, you know, in the, in the first question of, you know, the financial, the, the safety, like, do I need an STD test? Yes, you do. And, you know, what are those results? You put my health at risk, you know, all, all of those things are, you know, and, and unfortunately, and I, and I hate it, but, um, you know, many partners are filled with shame to go get an STD test. And I'm like, you're taking, like, you're taking care of your body, but of course it's at, you know, this is something that you're doing because of nothing that you did, you are now having to experience the consequences. So, so y- y- all of those things could factor into your letter, but yeah, the, the two pages, cause you're right. The addicts tune out, you don't, can't hear the, the real meat of the um, questions or the letters. Um, I want to add one other thing that I think is mm-hmm. particularly important that the addicts need to hear is when they're angry. You know, I don't, I'm not abusive. I don't get that angry in your letter. Well, you yell a lot, you throw plates, you know, you slam your fist against a wall, you walk out and slam the door. Being abused doesn't just mean that you're beaten up or slapped. It can mean being scared. And if you, if that person, if you say to them, you know, I think this is going and and they say, you know, shut the F up and I don't want to hear about it anymore. And God damn it. Why do we, you know, that may be them just being defensive, but I would be, I don't want to ever be frightened of the person that I live with. And it's really important. I think that guys often say, oh my God, I never thought I abused my spouse, but I yell all the time. I break things. I you know they're probably scared. So I just think having a broad definition of what abuse means and making sure that the addicts hear that is something very important for those letters. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.